Well, as I mentioned, we're starting a new sermon series through the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are arguably the best-known passage in all of Scripture. It seems like pretty much everyone out there has some exposure to the Ten Commandments. Maybe you learned about the Ten Commandments when you were in church as a kid. Maybe you saw pictures of the Ten Commandments, whether it was in cartoons or in church lessons, kind of like the ones we're going to show up on the screen. The first one is this. This is a very calm, cool, and collected Moses, at least it looks like. But then he's got the Ten Commandments up, and he's ready to smack somebody with them. So there's one picture of Moses that you may have been exposed to. Here's another one, a second one. This is my favorite. This is the one where Moses is standing on the mountain and he is being struck by lightning or the Ten Commandments are being struck by lightning and his biceps are just massive and he looks like a superhero and he's going to beat somebody up. That's my personal favorite. But maybe you didn't see pictures. Maybe you saw the movie, the famous movie, One Last Picture with Charlton Heston, The Ten Commandments. That's the movie that you see on TV like once a year around Easter. Maybe you saw that movie. Or maybe your exposure to the Ten Commandments has not been through growing up in church. It hasn't been through seeing pictures or a movie. Maybe your exposure has been kind of negative. When you hear Ten Commandments, you think of all the political battles that happen with the Ten Commandments. You think about all those news stories about how there's people in some place or in some state that are protesting the fact that the Ten Commandments can't be put out in front of the courthouse. And so you see pickets or you see protests or whatever it is that happens from people who want the Ten Commandments out there, even though they probably can't even name all ten of them. Or you see the protests from people who don't want them out there, who want them removed, want them taken away from the courthouse. And you hear that, you see that, and you think, you know what, this is just controversial. This is just the kind of thing that makes conversations awkward at parties. So I really don't want any part of the Ten Commandments. Or maybe you're used to going back to your family's house for Thanksgiving or for Christmas, and at some point, Uncle Frank, you know he's going to say it, he says, you know, our country is so off track, our country is so messed up, we just need to get back to the Ten Commandments. If we can just do that, all these problems that we're dealing with will finally be taken care of. We have lost our moral fabric, and the Ten Commandments are the answer. Maybe that's your exposure. But clearly, regardless of what your exposure may be, most people have some idea of the Ten Commandments. That being said, the Ten Commandments often get a bad rap. You know, we're not the first people to dislike rules, to dislike authority, to dislike submission. We're not revolutionary in that regard. That's part of human nature. Long ago, from the time of Adam and Eve, when we hear rules, when we hear laws, when we hear guidelines, there's this little part of us that naturally wants to just push back. We naturally want to see how far we can bend these rules or see how far we can rebel. Or maybe we use that line of, well, you know, rules are made to be broken. So we hear the Ten Commandments and we kind of get a bad taste in our mouths. Or maybe we're Christians and we hear the Ten Commandments and we say, you know what, that's great that it's in the Old Testament, but we're saved by grace. I don't need to pay attention to the Ten Commandments. We're not saved by following rules. We're not saved by following commandments. I really don't need this. And as a matter of fact, the more I really think about it, I probably don't really need the rest of the Old Testament. Well, I totally agree. We are saved by grace. There's no doubt about that. 
But that does not mean that the Ten Commandments or the rest of the Old Testament have no place in our lives as Christians. They very much can play a role in our lives as followers of Jesus. In fact, look at Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Paul writes in that passage, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul clearly seems to indicate the king of save by grace, the king of making sure that everyone knows that Jesus is the source of your salvation and Jesus only. Even Paul says, now, wait a minute, even though Jesus is the source of your salvation, don't forget that there are things you can learn from what was written in former days. They are there for a reason. They are there for our instruction. They are there for our guidance. And we would do well to look at them, and we would do very poorly if we just ignore them. And here's the thing. The Ten Commandments, in the first place, they are not just a list of rules. They are not just a list of commandments that we have to follow as best as we possibly can, or else we're going to end up in God's doghouse. That's not the idea. The Ten Commandments, at their core, they tell us about who God is. So that's what we're going to be looking at in this sermon series. We're going to look at each of the Ten Commandments. Some of you probably already know all of them. Probably not a ton of you. Some of you may be able to name a few, the few that pretty much everybody can recognize. And then some of you may not know really any of them. But we're going to look at them one by one and learn a little bit about the God who saved us through his son Jesus through these commandments. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Exodus chapters 19 and 20. We're going to mainly be in chapter 20, but keep your finger between Exodus 19 and 20. We'll be looking at that chapter a little bit too. If you left your Bible at home, grab one from underneath the chair. If you don't own one, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. That's a free gift from us to you. We want to make sure that you have a copy of God's word. We're in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. Now, before we actually start reading in these two chapters, it's important that we get a little bit of background of how we really got here. How did we get to the point where the Ten Commandments are being presented? Well, God calls a guy named Abram. He changes his name to Abraham, and God gives him the promise of offspring. Abraham's just a pretty normal guy. Just an average guy going on about his business, doing his everyday thing, nothing unique about him, nothing special about him, nothing different that would make God feel obligated to call him above anybody else. God, in his grace, calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to follow me. I want you to pack up the kids, pack up the wife, pack up the dog, pack up everything, and you're going to follow me wherever it is that I tell you to go. And Abraham says, well, um, I don't really know who you are, who's talking to me, but if you say so, all right, let's pack things up, let's move. And then God says, and not only that, Abraham, I want you to move, I want you to follow me, but I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give you descendants. In fact, I'm going to give you so many descendants that you can't even count them. It's going to be like the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. And Abraham says, well, that sounds really, really great, God. That sounds awesome, but... Sarah and I, we're pretty old. We're not really in the mood for that kind of thing anymore, if you know what I mean. So I really don't think we're going to have a ton of kids. But if you want to keep saying that, then okay. And sure enough, after some ups and downs, Abraham and Sarah, 
they have a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac has a son. His name is Jacob. And then Jacob has lots of sons. And Jacob didn't have the parenting blogs that we have today. And so Jacob breaks the cardinal rule of parenting. He has one favorite kid over the others. He loves his son Joseph more than any of the other brothers. That's a bad idea for parenting, but Jacob does it nonetheless. And Joseph knows that he's the favorite. And he's not scared to flaunt that he's the favorite. Joseph is not the most humble guy in the world. In fact, he has a dream, a vision from God, and he goes to his brothers and says, Hey guys, you know, I already get all the best stuff. I already got this coat of many colors that you guys don't get. But not only that, I had a dream, and God told me that one day you guys are all going to kneel down and worship me. Put yourself in the shoes of those brothers. They're not too happy about this. They're a little bit fed up with Joseph's arrogance, and so they formulate a plan. Out in the desert one day, they sell Joseph into slavery. They make it look like he was eaten by some wild animal. They pour blood on his coat, and they take it back to Jacob, and they say, Dad, we have horrible, horrible news. Your favorite son, the one who you thought was better than all of us, well, he's dead. We found his coat. He was killed by a wild animal. We don't really know what happened to him, but we certainly assume that he's not alive anymore. Jacob mourns. The other brothers probably celebrate that Joseph is finally out of their hair. But the story is just beginning for Joseph. As he's sold into slavery, there's a long story of ups and downs, this roller coaster ride that is Joseph's life. But he ends up being second in command in Egypt. That's a pretty big role. That's a pretty big up in Joseph's life. And he's probably thinking, you know, I wish my brothers could see me now. I wish they could see what I'm doing now. I wish that they could see what it is that they did and what it is that God has done, even though they tried to get rid of me. Wait till they see me. Well, they do see Joseph. There's a famine in the land, and all of Joseph's brothers go to Egypt, and they ask for food. And guess who's in charge of the food? Old Joseph. They don't recognize that it's Joseph at first. Joseph recognizes them, and Joseph tests them a little bit. He kind of plays with their heads a little bit, and then he finally comes out and admits, Guys, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not just some random Egyptian Leader, I'm your brother. Remember the one that you sold into slavery? That's me. And the brothers are amazed. But Joseph doesn't take revenge. There's a family reunion. Everyone kisses and they make up. Everyone moves to Egypt and they're happy. Jacob rejoices that his son is actually alive after all these years that he thought he was dead. And everything is just peachy. But it's not going to stay peachy forever. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. We read in that passage, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Eventually, Joseph dies. The leadership regime changes in Egypt. And all of a sudden, Jacob and his family, those descendants of Abraham, are not really looked favorably upon anymore in Egypt. In fact, they're growing so much that the Egyptian leaders might be concerned that they're going to become the minority in their own country. 
So they have to figure out something to control these Israelites, these descendants of Abraham. And so they put them in to slavery. They put them under oppression. We don't really know for sure how long this oppression lasted. There are debates about how long it went, but we do know that it wasn't a short stint. It was not just a brief bump in the road. It was a pretty significant oppression. They find themselves in slavery. Look at Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. After some time in slavery, we read this. During those days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob, those guys that we just talked about. God saw the people of Israel and God knew It's an interesting wording of that passage. God saw them and God knew. Doesn't exactly seem like the plan given to Abraham, the calling given to Abraham, doesn't really look like it's materializing. Doesn't really look like it's coming to fruition the way Abraham thought it would. But God sees that. God knows what's happening. God knows what comes next. And what comes next is that these people would be freed from slavery. And that would happen through a guy named Moses, the last major character we're going to look at. Now, Moses himself, just like Joseph, has an interesting story. He's hidden from danger when he's born. He's floated down the river and he ends up in Pharaoh's household. He's raised by his mother, but then as he gets older, he ends up being in this royal family and this leadership in Egypt, even though he was just another slave baby. One day later in Moses' life, he loses his temper when he sees an Egyptian beating up a fellow Israelite. And so Moses kills the Egyptian. He doesn't think that anybody sees it. He thinks that he got away with murder. But then a few days later, some Hebrews say to him, Hey, uh, Moses, we saw what you did to that Egyptian. What makes you think that you're better than us? What makes you think that you have to be our savior? And so Moses says, Well, if I've been found out, I better just get out of Dodge. Moses flees. He goes out into the wilderness. He starts a new life. He thinks that he's going to live this relatively inconspicuous life, getting a fresh slate, not worrying anymore about all that crazy stuff that happened in Egypt. And just when he's getting comfortable, just when things are starting to calm down, God speaks. God speaks from a burning bush. And he charges Moses, along with his brother Aaron, to lead his people out of Egypt. Moses and Aaron are not going to do this on their own. They're not going to do this by their own strength or ability or power or wisdom or anything. God's going to help them. And after some hesitance, Moses says, all right, God, if you say so, I'll go back to Egypt. And God comes with him. There are plagues. There are signs. There's chaos. There's pain. There's heartache. But finally, Pharaoh gives up. He gives in and he gives in and he says, you know what? Even though I'm losing a ton of my slave labor, get out of here. Just go. Go worship your God. We can't deal with these plagues anymore. So just leave. Just get out of our hair. But then Pharaoh changes his mind. Just when the Israelites think that they're finally free, they hit the Red Sea. Pharaoh decides to make one last push 
to bring the Israelites back into slavery, but God looks out for them. The Israelites cross the Red Sea. They make it across on dry land, a pure miracle. And then as the Egyptians try to grab them by the foot, as they're stepping out of the Red Sea, God closes the Red Sea on the Egyptians. And that brings us to where we are. After this incredible story, these ups and downs that went all the way back to that Genesis 12 promise to Abraham, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. They're free from oppression. But what in the world comes next? Well, that's where the Ten Commandments come in. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, that's it. That's verse 1. Stop right there. God spoke all these words, saying. Now look at the Ten Commandments. You think about it. This is really, in a sense, God's introduction to his people. This is his reintroduction to his people. He met Abraham. He's talked to Moses a little bit, but most of these people really haven't had a whole lot of experience with God. But the first thing we learn about God in this commandment is that God speaks. God speaks. Now that is a big deal. Put yourself in the shoes of these slaves. They had heard for generations that God spoke to Abraham, that God has a plan for our people, that we are part of this big plan to bless all the nations as Abraham's descendants. We've heard all that. Our forefathers and ancestors have talked about that, but here we are in Egypt doesn't really seem like the plan is working. I haven't heard God any time recently. I haven't heard him speak. Maybe our ancestors were just a little bit crazy when they thought that God had a plan for us. Maybe Abraham just got a little bit too hot out in the desert, and God really doesn't have a plan for us at all. This is all just a big set of coincidences, and there's nothing coming next. You can't blame them for thinking that. After all that time of silence. But then God speaks up. He introduces himself to these people. And as they hear God through Moses for the first time, in a sense, this is God saying, all right, folks, you're my people. All that stuff was true. My promise to Abraham, it wasn't just a fluke. But here's the thing. This is the stuff that matters to me. This is the stuff that's important This is the stuff that I want to mark you apart by as my people. So remember this stuff, because this stuff matters to me, and it should matter to you as well. And he speaks it. Now, this is different from all the other gods of the day. They didn't speak. They were silent. They were made of wood or metal or stone. They couldn't speak even if they wanted to. But this God does. He's the only God who does. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. We read in that passage, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Two verses in, we already get to our second thing that we learn about God. The first thing is that God speaks. The second thing is that God redeems. Look at Exodus chapter 19, second half of verse 3 and verse 4. 
the Lord called to Moses out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God reiterates to his people that he's the one who brought them out of Egypt. He is the one who delivered them. He is the one who broke their chains. He is the one that spoke to Abraham and got this whole ball rolling in the first place. And they should never, ever forget that. Because he is the only God who redeems. Now, he uses that eagle imagery. He says that I lifted you up or lifted you out on eagles' wings. Now, for these people, the eagle was well-known. Eagles were known for being fierce predators. You didn't want to cross an eagle because that's a dangerous, dangerous animal. And God says, I'm kind of like that eagle because just like it's fierce towards its enemies, you saw what I did to Egypt. You saw how I delivered you. And I'm going to continue to do that. But not only that, he's going to protect his people. God can play offense, and God can play defense. As the Israelite people were crossing the Red Sea, God played defense. He protected those people from the Egyptians with that one last shot at bringing them back into oppression. God redeems them. He protects them, and he speaks. Look at chapter 20, verse 3. We actually get into the commandment itself. You shall have no other gods before me. God speaks. God redeems. The third thing we learn is that God sets apart. Now, in Moses' day and age, it would have been absolutely bizarre for a nation or for a people to only worship one God. That would have been crazy. How in the world can you only worship one God? How can one God possibly handle all the things that are going on in the world? It's impossible. It's just too much for one God to manage. His people would stick out like a sore thumb. Well, back to chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God makes it clear that, folks, you're going to be different. You're going to be a treasured possession. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a holy nation. When people see you, when people see you obeying my commandments, they're going to say, when the world is with this God of yours. You can imagine some non-Israelite asking an Israelite, hey, uh, you know, I've noticed that when I come over to your house, um, you don't have all those gods on your mantle the way I do. You know, we offer sacrifices to them. We pray to them. You don't have any of that stuff. Do you not worship God? Or what do your gods look like? And the Israelite would say, well, actually, I only have one God, and he doesn't sit on my mantle. He's not made of wood or metal or stone. He's the God who speaks. He spoke to Abraham, and he spoke to Moses. He's the God who redeems because he brought us out of slavery. Have your gods ever done anything like that? I mean, every time I come over, they're just sitting on the mantle, not really doing anything. But our God redeems. And you're right in saying that we're weird because, yeah, God has really set us apart, hasn't he? 
we do kind of stick out. But, you know, I kind of like it that way because I think that's what God wants. Because God wants people like you to ask these questions about what's so different about him. You know, I think I remember hearing that promise to Abraham, it would bless all nations. And so maybe as you come to me and ask what's so different about our God, maybe that was kind of the whole idea. And the Israelite would say, yep, our God does speak. Our God does redeem and our God does set apart. He is better than every other God. We worship him above all other gods. In fact, none of the other gods out there are worthy of our worship when we line them up next to our God. Now, one more thing in chapter 20, verse 3 that we learn. God is better than all the other gods. Not only does he set his people apart, but he himself is different. He himself is set apart. Those other gods were created by human hands, but this God, he creates the humans that create those gods. This God has always existed. This God spoke the world into being in Genesis 1. Those gods don't do that. Those gods were often believed to be rash, believed to be unpredictable. They would have agendas against one another. They would have agendas against humans, and that's just not what God is like. But those gods also command things like child sacrifice. The god Molech commanded that. He was famous for that. I recently read that there was an excavation to expand a runway and an airport in the Middle East. And as they were digging to expand the runway, they found a mass grave filled with children's bones from years and years and years and years earlier. That God commanded child sacrifice. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he doesn't command that. He's different than they are. He's the only one who creates. He's the only one who speaks. He's the only one who redeems. He's the only one who sets apart. And only he is worthy of worship. I recently read a study in this book written by Albert Moeller. And Albert Moeller writes this. He writes about a study done in Britain. Several years ago in Britain, researchers went door to door asking persons about their belief in God. One of their questions, do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of affairs, who performs miracles, etc.? In other words, do you believe in a God who is active? Do you believe in a God who is powerful and actively involved in what's going on around you and me right now? When published, their study took as its title the response of one man who was seen as rather typical of those who responded. He answered, no, I don't believe in that God. I just believe in the ordinary God. Well, God makes it clear. He's not an ordinary God. He's not like all the other gods. He is not just your typical run-of-the-mill God of Moses' day. He is very, very different. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, you know, that sounds great, but this is kind of outdated. You know, I mean, we're past the point in our society of worshiping all kinds of gods for crops or for weather or for fertility or health or whatever. We're past that. Our technology is better. We're a lot smarter than they were back then. So really, I don't see what the point of this is today. This doesn't really apply to me. But here's the thing. We may not be tempted to worship gods that command child sacrifice. We may not be tempted to worship the gods of the Egyptians or the gods of the Canaanites or anybody else for that matter. But we are often tempted 
to worship the God of money, the God of power, the God of sex, the God of pleasure, the God of success, the God of food, the God of approval, the God of the American dream. There are other gods out there, and they are asking for our worship. In the words of Bob Dylan, everybody serves somebody. Who is it that we serve? You may also be thinking, you know, that all sounds good, this worshiping only one God and worshiping God above all other gods. And yes, I've heard this story before about don't fall in love with money and yada, yada, yada. I get it. I've heard it. But this doesn't really have a whole lot to do with me because I already worship this God. I was never a slave in Egypt, and this just isn't really my story. But here's the thing. This story is very much our story. We may not have ever been slaves in Egypt, but we've been slaves to sin. We may not be tempted to worship those gods, but we are good at finding something to worship. And you know, remember that part in Exodus chapter 19, that part about God setting his people apart and God making them a treasured possession? Well, believe it or not, and by God's grace, that's part of our story too. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is going to ring a bell. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The God who speaks never speaks louder than on the cross. The God who redeems, he redeems through the blood of Jesus Christ. The God who sets apart, he has set us apart. Not because we're descendants of Abraham, but because we have faith in Christ. The only God worthy of our worship is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The God who sent his son to die for us. The God who gives us the Holy Spirit that we might be his followers, that we might be marked as a people of his possession. So the question again is, who do we worship? Because everybody serves somebody. This is our opportunity as people and as a church to reaffirm that there's only one God worthy of worship. This is our opportunity to once again proclaim that we worship this God. No other God is worthy of worship. So as we read these Ten Commandments over the coming weeks, let's make sure that we proclaim that again. Let's make sure that we never get tired of proclaiming that. Because there is no other God but our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you make it so clear in the Ten Commandments. There is so little wiggle room in so many of these verses that you make it clear who you are. And God, in your grace, you have spoken to us. Just like you spoke to Abraham, just like you spoke to Moses, you have spoken to us and you've communicated to us who you are. You show us who you are, not just through 
these commandments, but you show us who you are at a cross in Jerusalem. And we are grateful and we are humbled. God, I pray that our loyalty, that our love, that our allegiance, our commitment, it will go to you and to you alone. There are other things out there, God, that demand our attention, that seem tempting, that promise that they can bring us happiness or success or wealth or approval or whatever things it is that we're looking for. But God, we know that only you offer true fulfillment. Only you speak. You're the only one who redeems. You have set us apart. And God, I pray that we will proclaim you and you alone. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. If you're not quite yet at the point where you have made that proclamation that I worship this God, that there is no other God but this one, that there is no other God outside of the one who sent his son to die for us. If you have not made that proclamation yet, I would encourage you to talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. Talk to me. I'd be happy to have that conversation with you as well. Maybe you're dealing with something in your life and you really need to go to this God, this one true God in prayer. We'd be happy to pray with you as well. Take advantage of that. Talk to one of these guys. I'd be happy to have that conversation with you.